We are officially beginning. I would like to welcome everyone to Black Music Month, the Black Music Month installment of the Afternoons With podcast. This podcast is inspired by the Marcus Graham Project and our mission at Afternoon Agency is to curate authentic stories that reflect intersectionality. And the purpose of this podcast is to create conversation around topics relevant to our industry and our culture. My name is Makisha Noel. I am the team's copywriter and I'm so excited to be interviewing and having this conversation, not to sound so formal, but I'm having a conversation with the Marcus Collins. Um, And so we are celebrating, like I said, the conclusion of Black Music Month and discussing a very important overlooked topic, hip hop's influence on advertising. So I'm gonna go ahead and read your bio and then you'll also be able to add as well, but I wanna do the major introduction I'm very theatrical. Um, So today's guest, Marcus Collins, studies the effects of cultural contagion on consumer behavior as a marketing professor at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, and translates these cultural learnings for blue chip brands that wish to create contagious marketing campaigns. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. That that extends across both the online and offline words of social. He has had the privilege to be acknowledged for strategic and creative contributions. We're talking about advertising ages, ad ages, 40 under 40 recipient and Creole award winner and launched campaigns like Cliff Hall for State Farm, the Made in America Music Festival for Budweiser, Hello Brooklyn for the Brooklyn Nets and the Ego plus Netflix Stranger Things, Stranger Things Conquest. I introduce you and he has also worked with the Queen Bee of Beyonce. <laughs> they have worked together and he's gonna get into that as well. I introduce to you Marcus Collins. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I am. Uh, I'm a huge advocate uh, for Marcus Graham Project. Um, so anytime I get a call, I'm down to do it. I love, love MPG. Yes, thank you. I just love that. And I'm gonna make sure the audience knows that the goal of this conversation is to is to amplify the impact our culture has on international media landscape and to reclaim ownership of the conversation. So we couldn't think of anyone else but Marcus Collins to help close out Black Music Month for this conversation. And so I have a few questions in front of me, Marcus. Let's get into it. And we're gonna do past, present, and future. Um, but I definitely want to talk about the um, your career as well and how you kind of see how uh, hip hop and advertising has evolved and where do you see it going in the future? So first, I want to ask you, if you can think back on the first campaign you remember using hip hop to push product, when did you feel the integration of, when did you feel like the, the integration of hip hop and advertising kind of come together? The first campaign you could think of. I think the first one that, that comes to mind for me had to be the Sprite Obey Your Thirst uh, campaign. And I remember it so vividly the first one I saw was like very colorful. It was like white background. It was kid in play. It was um, uh, heavy D. And I was like, yo, like I know those guys, those are my people. So seeing that uh, made me feel like I was represented. I mean, in those days, outside of kid in play, like you only saw heavy D like on BET. Like you know, he wasn't playing on, on uh, MTV or VH1 when they played videos, nor was he like on like your primetime shows like you'd see later in the 90s that didn't really exist, but it was the campaign with uh, Pete Rock, CL Smooth, mm-hmm. and uh, Grand Pooba that completely blew my mind. I just felt like that was the, it, it, it captured the grit, it captured the realness, the authenticity of hip hop. Someone said it this way, that seeing the Sprite can in the studio during that, that, uh, that ad felt like that Sprite can was a blunt, like it belonged there. Like it was just a part, it was just so a part of the culture. Um, and I feel like that to me kind of create, set the, the, the bar on what good advertising looked like if it were to integrate itself mm-hmm. with hip hop culture. Oh, that is fire. And what, and I really don't want to age anyone, but what year was, was that one again? I believe that was 91. It was like 1991, maybe 92. It was in the early, early 90s. And think about this. This is the interesting part about that is that so that that campaign runs early 90s, definitely early 90s. And juxtapose that to a spot that Pepsi was doing with MC Hammer. Mm-hmm. 
right? And you see Hammer, this is like flashy. This is like too legit to quit. And actually think that the spot was using too legit to quit. This is too legit to quit Hammer. This is like big million dollar production Hammer versus Pete Rock sales smooth, black and white spot there in the studio, like in a cypher with, like, it's like that felt like hip hop where at the time Hammer did not. Right. And for these brands to understand the, the intricacies, the, the nuances of, of the culture, you can see what felt real and what felt commercialized, even though they both were commercial products. Yeah, that's really huge. And I think that that also goes to question who are the people in the room for them to get it so right? Um, and that's something that we've in, even been talking about as a team for the agency. One of the first required readings that we had to read was Bill Sharp's book is a 35 page booklet um it just talked about how in the 60s um the amount of black advertisers was three percent and now it's only six percent just under percent yeah wow that is super huge and I think it's so interesting that at the time though they were able to get that so well even in 1991 when I was just a thought, um, <laughs> a glimmer well, the, 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 <laughs> the brand manager at Sprite, uh, Daryl, I can't remember his last name. He, he got it. Like he, he, he knew it. He understood the culture because yes. like, he's, and I can't even say he was from the culture. He's understood it. Like he, mm. he was, um, he understood that the nuances of it. And that's really what it requires when you talk about the people in the room to understand the social cultural characteristics of the population of people that you're trying to connect with, that you're trying to activate, because we can see it like a million miles away when it's wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just like I think about like fraternities and sororities. Like, you know, they have the grip, they have their call, they have mm-hmm. their, you know, all the codes to the culture of being a part of that organization. If someone does the handshake wrong, you're like, nah, B, you ain't real. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens when you think about hip hop culture, the same way it happens that if it doesn't, if it's not accurate to the nuances you know it ain't real and it requires real like you know real understands real mm-hmm. and i just actually saw one of your um i believe it was episode 11 with the um the different hand symbols i don't know if i should even do it but um how you show how kappas they have like the you know the sign you yeah. know the sign um, right. and it also represents white supremacy as well so that's really interesting so i will say Thinking about the present now, so what is your opinion on content being produced by brands and ad agencies nowadays, 2020, the middle of COVID? Well, the, so I'd say the same thing goes. I mean, this, this is the interesting part here is that the technology changes really, 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 really fast, but people change very, 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 very slowly. I mean, we're still working with the same hardware, right? Like mm-hmm. Their brains are wired very similarly to they were in our sub-Saharan African days as they are today. The, the, the operating system may have upgraded, but the hardware is still very much the same. So we're still bounded by the confines of the confines of how we are wired. And the things that worked in the 60s and Bill Sharp days, thinking about what makes good advertising, still goes today. It's all about people, understanding people, understanding the underlying physics of why we do what we do, the consumer behavior, right? The human behavior um, that is exhibited in, in, in how we show up in the world and the identity products that we take on as members of the world. Yes. So when brands, institutions, organizations, individuals, right, when we make content, like we're not making, we're not making art and copy and, and, uh, and motion pictures, like we're making cultural product. Mm. Like we're creating things, we're creating cultural text right, that is embedded and pregnant with meaning. Yeah. And what happens is that when groups of people, society and the, the, the fragments, the, the neo-tribes that exist within these, these big groups of society, mass society, they receive these messages, text, film, video, uh, 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 symbols, gestures, ads, products, and they rework the meaning that exists in that, right? It's all very subjective. They see it and they make meaning of it. Mm-hmm. So when we're making products, when we're making ads, we're making content as marketers, as content creators, 
Like we are creating cultural product that will be interpreted by the group of people based upon their sociocultural lens by which they see the world mm -hmm. and the way they make meaning of it. Which means that if we are creating this content to provoke, to elicit response from this group of people, then we need to understand their cultural frames, how they see the world, how they make meaning of the world, which ultimately informs how they behave in the world. And yeah. the challenge with that is that marketers don't know jack about people. How is that possible? I, I just need to know, how is that even possible when there's so much research, apparently, that goes into understanding target audiences, the time that's taken to create buyer personas, how is it that marketers still aren't getting it right? So here's the first, we call them audiences. Let's start there. Like mm -hmm. audiences are a group of passive people waiting for messages to wave over them. Mm -hmm. When you go to the movie theater in a pre-COVID world, right? We are audiences. We sit there and we watch and we absorb, right? We let it just kind of all wash over us. But that's not how we are in the world. We're not like passive audiences in the world. We are active in everything that we do, right? We're actively uh, maximizing value for ourselves. We're actively um, positioning ourselves for the identity projects that we take on, how we want to express ourselves. We are completely active in everything that we do. Why would we think that people are passive? So the fact that we coin them as audiences totally sets the stage for us to mischaracterize who people are. Mm. Marketers often think of people as machines that eat messages and crap cash, right? They're audiences. We bombard them with messages and then ultimately they're like, here, here's my money, just take my money, mm -hmm. right? So that's the first is that we miscategorize them as a populace, right? We call them audiences, not people. Secondly, to your point, it's like we have all these personas. Well, the thing is that personas are often based on two flawed things, one more flawed than the other. The first is demographics. Mm -hmm. Demographics is this blunt instrument that marketers have used since forever mm -hmm. to describe what people are. Age, race, gender, um, household income, geography, maybe the language that you speak, right? And while those things are statistically observed, right? One may say that they are true, right? But even gender is fluid. So like how, mm -hmm. how, how can, it, it, it's a fluid thing. So how can we say that you are this, not that to yeah, start? Yeah. But we use these things that are observations that we, we consider our statistical truths. The issue is that um, they don't accurately describe who I am. So take for instance, so I am 41 years old, black, from Detroit, holla, uh, went to public schools my entire life, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if a marketer saw that on a brief, they'd say, oh, he must walk like this, talk like this, yeah. hang out with those people, buy these things and do that because that's just what those kind of people do, right? Like, <laughs> this is what marketers do all the time, mm -hmm. right? And, and while, yes, I am black, I am 41, I am from Detroit, right? Holla, I went to public schools, absolutely. It doesn't give rise to the fact that, like, I grew up playing jazz as a kid or that I swam competitively, right? And a lot of black people swim competitively, right? But I swam competitively, mm -hmm. right? I studied engineering, I like to sail. These things shape how I see the world and ultimately how I behave in the world. Mm -hmm. Demographics could never get close to describing that. Right. And right. the way we use demography are these blunt instruments to treat people like a monolith mm -hmm. based on these physical attributes that we have, right? It's like, right. you know, all women love to shop. That's not true. Nope. Right? All black people do something fill in the blank racist. Like this is what marketers do all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We do it with, with, with age. It's like those millennials, those Gen Z's. So you mean to tell me because everyone, these people were born in a certain period of time, they're all the same. That don't make no sense. Mm -hmm. I'm saying everybody 35 to 55 is the same. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. that's what we do. That now, is some marketers would say, well, that's why we focus on psychographics. Like, yeah their interests, their wants, right? Their values. Okay, yeah, that's better than demography. But the issue with psychographics is that psychographics tell us what people do. They don't tell us why they do it. They don't get at causality. So if we really want to understand people, we have to know, A, how to describe them based on causal things, i.e., the way they see the world, how they behave in the world as a result of it, but also understand the causality of their behavior. Yeah. Right? So how do we accurately describe them, but also get at what actually causes them to do what they do? And the answer to that is pretty simple. It's the networks that we subscribe to, mm -hmm. our, our social institutions, our people. 
with of which these groups are are governed by cultural characteristics that help us see the world yeah. make meaning of the world which informs how we consume okay. yeah which means the consumption at its very core mm -hmm. is a cultural act mm -hmm. good okay so i want to make sure that the audience understands the reason why brands are not getting it right is because their marketers are focusing solely on demographics which are just a blunt instrument to describe groups of people and then you took it a step further and said okay we would think that psychographics work and i am like gung-ho we need to understand the psychographics and so like i i low-key had like a breakthrough because i didn't realize that the focusing on the why that people do what they do is just as important as what they do uh, so that's really that's really good i'm gonna kind of take that out of your playbook <laughs> I'm, I'm here to give you freely we I need mean, it and this, I mean, is, this is so mm -hmm. this is why this is why like, when marketers talk about trends uh -huh. you know, Ever go the next step forward, right? Like trends, like we do a lot of trend spotting. Here's the trend: people are wearing this, people are going here, people eat this now, people uh, do this thing now. It's like that's great, awesome, but why are they doing it? Mm -hmm. That is the cultural part. That is the meaning-making process mm -hmm. that informs the the behavior. And the only way we can get that, the only way we get there, it requires a ridiculous amount of intimacy. Mm, okay. Ultimate very 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 close they get very very close to oh. understand the the meaning making process that people take on yeah. right? if i understand how you see the world right from a very em empathetic perspective i understand how you see the world how you make meaning of the world and like how it makes you feel like can articulate it back to you then my chances of engaging you are far higher than mm -hmm. be like all women do this. Oh, those young, those those Gen Zs, they don't know nothing. They all want X, Y, and Z, which is just ridiculous. Yes. Yes. So, okay. I want to make sure we stick to the questions, but like what you're, oh, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Go. What, you're what you're saying is making me think so much deeper, um, so much deeper just about the topic of connecting with people as well. Because my question will also be, what what tools do you use to understand to understand people within those groups so like i think about subcultures as well um and let, let me make sure i say on top the topic of hip-hop specifically yeah. no 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 but you're right you're 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 going the right way keep going keep going you're good keep going yeah so in, in thinking about how people can be categorized in subcultures i just also think about how like you said you grew up swimming you grew up playing jazz you grew up going to band camp and band camp and you're also passionate about hip-hop and how hip-hop moves us so if people if people but but uh, how do i say this so with how different people are how do how do marketers like even keep track of that you know like how do you like what tools do you con have continuous focus groups how so it's it so the question you you ask is is the right question so how do we how do we do this and ultimately, the, the sort of, you know, too long didn't read is you got to observe it. You got to observe uh -huh. the behavior. So, so I, I'm also in academia, right? So I'm working on my doctorate at the moment. And, you know, if we want to study culture. The way you study culture is to immerse yourself in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. It's to go native, right? There's ethnographies is, is one very popular way that we understand people, right? Yeah. And ethnography, so say I want to know about NASCAR fans right i want to know about that community that subculture of nascar fans i'll probably go to some appalachian state and i'm i go live there for three months eat where they eat hang out where they hang out mm -hmm. uh, watch what they watch go to nascar I, I would i would live the life of a nascar fan to understand the cultural characteristics that guide the behavior of being a nascar fan mm -hmm. and i can come back and say hey guys here's the truth Here, here's what here's what these people are all about same thing with hip-hop heads or sneaker heads or or uh, uh, runners or cosplayers, whatever your thing is, right? Like you can understand them more when we become them. That's the intimacy part. Now, ethnographies are long and expensive and you know, they're resource heavy, but we have ways to explore and observe human behavior at a mass scale using social listening. When mm -hmm. we get to observe the discourse between people, 
and we can understand the meaning-making process that happens there based upon the cultural characteristics that informs it. Now, it requires more than just, I looked at some stuff on Twitter and said, okay, this is what's happening. The same way we would physically in an Appalachian region, we do the exact same things in a Facebook or a Twitter, or in my research uh, focuses primarily on Reddit, right? So I spend my time in Reddit and subreddits based on a, a certain subcultural affiliation to understand what are the dynamics happening here from a discourse analysis perspective to a interpretive perspective to a media discourse analysis perspective to understand how things are evaluated and ultimately how they're legitimated and adopted. Mm, that is good. That was good. So I, I wanna I wanna move into so in, in keeping in the flow of, of hip hop. Um, yeah. influence, influence on people and it's become a lot more mainstream because it's becoming a lot more mainstream has it diluted the sanctity of the art form and the foundation of black culture no so I think so I'm so I study hip-hop so my, my my research at the moment right now I'm studying social contagion within the hip-hop cultural consumption yes so I'm studying how brands and branded products propagate within um within hip-hop culture um and if you in hip-hop so there's the 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 misnomer is that hip-hop is music it's like well no hip-hop is the culture right music the music of hip-hop is rap music right mm, that's yeah. it's like rap which is like we use the shortcut like it's hip-hop but like the music form is rap but it rap is the mythology of the hip-hop culture just like you know, um, uh, gospel music is the mythology of gospel, right? We we sing praise, right, which communicates the cultural norms of what it means to be a Christian, or if you're a Jewish, a cantor, or whatever, right? <clears throat> um, folklore, right? The mythology is communicated through through legends, through storytelling, right? And hip hop, in hip hop, rap music is the vehicle for that sort of um, that sort of retelling of what is in, what is out, what is acceptable, what is not. Mm-hmm. And hip hop from its early days have, have been that, right? Um, and while it's been adopted by more people, clearly it's the number one uh, music genre in the country, yes. mm-hmm. the sensibilities of what it means to be hip hop is still very pure to the people who subscribe to it. Now it evolves. Now that's the thing. That's the thing that like where hip hop struggles is that in culture evolves. It has to evolve. It always evolves. If it doesn't evolve, it dies out. Mm-hmm. So think about another music genre that had a cult that culture associated with it. Think of like punk rock, mm-hmm. like punk. Like there were there were there were beliefs, there were artifacts, there were behaviors, and there was a language to be punk right like oh that's so punk rock like there's a certain way of being and punk music was the creative cultural product that came out of the subculture punk now if you look at punk from like the iggy pops to the ramones like back in the in the like the 60s and 70s like that sort of punk it still looks exactly the same today and it sounds very much the same how big is punk as a culture not big at all Mm-hmm. because it hasn't evolved yeah heavy metal same way like heavy metal had a culture to it right you wore big hair and leather and you know whatever like there was a certain like lifestyle that you that you subscribe to it doesn't evolve and now heavy metal is like who listens to heavy metal mm-hmm. let alone it's 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 saliency in in popular culture hip-hop on the other hand continues to evolve it continues to evolve it continues to grow continue yeah used to change, used to uh, be expressed differently. What was okay is no longer okay. What was cool is no longer cool. Like the way people, everything that are expre- expressions of the culture evolves. And with that, new people come in, people who are like this, y'all, y'all young cats don't know nothing about really hip hop. It's like, mm-hmm. actually you need to evolve with the, with the culture, brother. Yeah, wow, okay. That makes me think of so much. Um, can you can you still hear him? Can you still hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear Wait. you perfectly. All right. So I love everything that you're saying. Um 
and in thinking about how and thinking about how hip hop hip hop being um well rap drives the hip hop culture hip hop is a culture rap is the medium that drives that culture and hip hop is the mythology of the culture rap right in a lot of ways i can, i can see i can see i i understand that it drives the culture um to put it this way so in the early days hip hop consisted of four basic elements okay DJing, MCing, breaking and tagging like those were the four elements of hip hop okay. and actually in the early days like the MC was like the background person people came for the DJ the DJ was the thing the DJ the DJ drove the culture right like they made the records the records you know, they make the beats which 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 controlled the parties. The parties was the way people would come in, kind of floss to show themselves off, right? The b-boying uh, will happen there. People would tag themselves across the across the city landscape to like show who they were. But like the front and the front and foremost part of the culture, rest of the DJing, MCing came later on, and DJs kind of fell to to the background, and MC sort of came the face of it. Mm -hmm. Right, and which is why one would say to your point that rap music kind of drives the culture because mm -hmm. uh, MCs are the most present uh, manifestations of the culture, what they wear, what they say, what they do, and mm -hmm. how it's communicated through uh, through the music. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. And and speaking to so just how hip hop continues to evolve, um, and just think about how brands are or marketers are understanding it and misunderstanding it as well. One thing brands are not going to do though, <laughs> let's make sure we know that, is brands are not going to pander to us. Um, yeah. And what we can, what I'm seeing is, you know, brands kind of showing up and saying, you know, we stand for you, um, you know, we feel you, you know, we're here, but yet all, all their other practices are not a reflection of that. And I just hope as, as, um, as hip hop continues to evolve that we continue to, have those grab onto those narratives um, and help brands to see that we are not just a single story. And that's something that we have in conversation with our agency very often as well. Mm -hmm. And so I also want to talk about the future of hip hop as well. And how do you see that evolving? Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about, more about you, Marcus. And yeah. I want to hear, or now do I want to hear the audience wants to hear if this was a live if this is a live show, it'll be interesting. But tell the people, how did you get here? How did you, um, how did you kind of find your space here? I know you also talk about um, kind of being a black sheep and how um, your different identities just influence how you kind of show up and, and came to really get into understanding marketing and how do you speak to certain audience or people, not the audiences anymore, I'm learning. Um, <laughs> yeah. talk to talk to the people more about that. Okay, so I'll start with the with the the first, and then get into that part. You know, I think that you make a really good point. Like, so what's the future of hip hop? And what, what I think what I think is really powerful about the culture is is um, that it's allowing artists um, and other cultural producers to to make a living. Right, and they're like they make a living off the culture, and not off the culture. I put it, make a living because of what the culture has provided, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of times, the important part is that there is a responsibility to to that because you benefit from the culture, you are now responsible for the culture. In a lot of ways, these are the gatekeepers of the culture. Um, therefore, you have to create more opportunities for people, but also make sure that the integrity of the culture isn't. Uh, bastardized mm -hmm. so how i got here you know i started um you know i'm from detroit born and raised and uh i i didn't yeah you know, I, I was a hip-hop fan um love 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 hip-hop but grew up in church playing piano in church playing in band we all not <laughs> totally totally right like i'm a choir boy for sure mm -hmm. uh but i i studied engineering undergrad because i graduated in the 90s from high school late 90s I like math and science. And at that time, if you were black, you like math and science, you were an engineer. That's what you did. Mm -hmm. I studied engineering, which I thought was, you know, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I studied materials engineering because I was particularly interested in polymer chains. I thought the polymers were dope, that these carbon chains come together to create tangible things that we use. Mm -hmm. 
But I realized shortly that it's probably not the best way to describe <laughs> materials engineering is cool. Uh, it was definitely interesting and fascinating, but uh, my interest lied elsewhere. And I took music theory courses in school just to offset my terrible GPA. And uh, my parents, yeah, you know, I my parents, they're like, I think I want to be a songwriter. And they were like, nah, fam. So, you know, I, I finished my degree in engineering and then went into, uh, I graduated from 9-11. The market is horrible. So I, I went into the music industry. I did an internship at Universal Music Group. It didn't work out so well. Came back to Ann Arbor. I went to Michigan. Uh, ran a recording studio for one of my professors from music school. And I basically recorded my own stuff. Right? When the pay sessions were done, I would do my stuff. So I was writing love songs. So I did write love songs. Had a couple remixes this place, nothing huge. But um, an, a friend of mine and I, we ended up starting a company that on some days we were a production company. Other days we were distribution. We were um, development company and other days we were a record label but also helping brands connect with artists that were like big in their region right brands want to spend a little bit of money on on music in a very contextual way we help brands do that and that's how we made money for those early years which is great until the music industry tanked and our business was out of business because the music industry sucks so i uh i went to business school to figure it out when it got an mba figured out something to study um, I'm going to study branding and marketing with yeah. this specific emphasis on digital. I knew the place I wanted to work. I wanted to work at Apple. Mm -hmm. so I got a gig at Apple working at iTunes, which was dope. I'm managing our relationship with um, Nike Sports Music, which was just a dream come true. Mm -hmm. Around that time, I ended up meeting Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce. And Matthew <laughs> says, let me get this straight. You, uh, you're an engineer. You started a music company. You have an MBA, you work at iTunes, and you're black? <laughs> mm -hmm. Nigga, you're a unicorn. Who are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm real. I'm, I'm real. And he's like, yo, you should come run digital strategy for my company. Run digital strategy for Beyonce. Mm -hmm. I was like, yep, I should totally do that. So this is like, I am, this is in the single ladies days. It's like 2009, 2010, um, running digital for, for Beyonce and all the other artists who are on the management, uh, in the management under the management of Matthew Knowles and the record label uh, Music World. How old were you, by the way, if you don't mind? I was 30 when I went there, so I was 30. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was, it was eye-opening. What, what I really appreciated is that I got a chance to work with Beyonce, which is great. I guess we were on a hug basis when I see her, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> but it was really my proximity to Matthew mm. that I thought was was probably one of the most valuable things that I got. I learned a lot from the man. The man is very talented um, when it comes to to, to business, uh, music in particular, and like how to like how to curate and steward a brand. That being Beyonce at the time, uh, so I was very very fortunate to have that experience. What I realized is that you know. Three things. One, I had a sense that Beyonce was going to go off on her own and do her like self-manage, which meant that I wouldn't work for Beyonce anymore. So I was like, okay, that's a problem. Secondly, I I thought if I didn't work for Beyonce, like where do you go after Beyonce? Like everything's kind of a step down. Like just truthfully, like where do you like where do you go? Right? Like at the be at best, it's a lateral move. So I thought that like I don't know how how long my my tenure in music would be if I wasn't, you know, tethered to Beyonce. And the other part about that is that I just felt like, was that really any good? You know, whatever Beyonce did, it was going to be successful for the most part, whether I was there or not. So how good am I? And I thought wow. the, the alchemy of those three things, you know, it, it at least made the provocation that I should probably look elsewhere, like look at what the next step will be. And thought advertising was probably a good way to do it. Because ad, advertisers, advertisers were doing a better job of breaking artists than record labels were. Mm -hmm. So I uh, went to a place called Big Fuel, Pure Play Social Agency. This is 2011, 2010, 2011. Um, and that was cool. I was learning about social, like boot camp for social. And while I was there, I met Steve Stout. And uh, he changed my life. And Stout gave me an opportunity uh, to build a social agency within translation, basically to build and run uh, a social department, which the agency had not done at all. 
Um, and I came there and the, and the way he phrased it was words that I never really had is that, you know, he was trying to build an agency that help, you know, help brands thrive in contemporary culture. And I was like, contemporary culture, what, what exactly is that? Like, and then I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to intellectualize that because yeah. culture for me was just like culture. Things are in the media, things are celebrities, like that's all culture and have a really good understanding, at least a, um, a concrete understanding of what culture was. And my time at translation helped me not only understand it, but also understand how to navigate it and create cultural product that ultimately get people to move. While I was there, so I built the department there, ran it, um, launched the Made in America Music Festival, uh, moved the New Jersey Nets from New Jersey to Brooklyn to become the Brooklyn Nets with the Hello Brooklyn campaign. Um, uh, launched main, uh, launch, uh, but like platinum, mm -hmm. uh, which was which was pretty awesome. I mean, it just like you know these career defining things. At least for me, can't speak for anybody else. Yeah, you know, I just I had the opportunity to to do that and do it at a a a pretty uh, pretty high fidelity, pretty high clip. Yeah, you know this. Those were like the the major turning points for me. Truthfully, it's like my time in the MBA. Well, time starting the company, getting the MBA. Um, working in Apple, working with Beyonce, from Big Fuel into working at Translation really was the, it provided me an opportunity to put all these pieces together that I've been a part of from engineering to the present um, and take, to your point earlier, my experiences growing up as a black kid in Detroit who did a lot of non-black things, mm -hmm. right? Like there was a lot of black people swimming. No. To the trail. No. Yeah, competitively. You know, so I, I learned to code switch, which black people have to do anyway in this world. Yeah. Um, but I learned to to not only just code switch, but to like understand the 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 meaning making process of these different collectives that I were, were a part of. And it just helped me see the world differently. Like I I develop an an, an empathetic muscle that I think um, has benefited me more than I getting had given credit for it, having had given it credit um, uh, years ago. Wow. Woo. It's a lot, I know, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 but that's, that, that's so, so good. And, and if you can like notice like how I also asked how old you were and like just kind of where you were in life when you did those things, those are super, super huge. And just kind of hearing how you, struggle like where do i go from here after beyonce what who can't even think of it and just to kind of hear how you know the mentorship that you're able to experience along the way and you know steve stout pouring into you and investing in you is so huge and this is not one of my questions but all i kept thinking about was purpose and and how does that align with the purpose that you believe you're put on this world to do and how you impact people and black people too and how they even see themselves you know what role do you feel like you play in that yeah i look i uh anytime anything happens in my career like any accolade or anything like yeah anytime something happens in my career i always send an email to uh to matt fisher at apple to avi savar at big fuel mm -hmm. to matthew knowles and to steve stout thanking them for the opportunity wow. because they get, they, they gave me an opportunity that on paper, I did not, I was not qualified for. Mm. I had done the job before. Um, they just gave me an opportunity. They saw potential in me and let me take a swing at it. Um, and if it weren't for them giving me the opportunity, um, some more than others, like investing their time and sort of helping me develop, whether it was directly or indirectly, like I never would have had any of this ever. It's just people who who willing to take a, a take a, a, a swing or give me a shot, which I'm unbelievably grateful for. And you know where where I, where I am in my career now is like to your point that you know I have a very clear understanding of at least why I think I'm on this on this planet. You know I, I'm a firm believer that you know the whole duty of man is. Uh, is to serve God and serve each other. Yeah. That's what we're here to do. Serve God, serve each other, right? And actually we serve God by how we serve each other. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so the, the idea is then, so then how do I serve? And I believe that I'm here to serve by helping people realize their potential at the fullest fidelity possible. Yeah. I get a chance to do that in the classroom as a professor and do that in the boardroom as a practitioner. Right, help people see the world differently so they might be able to behave in the world differently. And that, and that informs all the decisions that I take on as far as my career. What's the right thing for me? Well, does it help me help people realize their potential? If not, don't do it. Now, look, selfishly, I want to put things in the world that impact culture. Like, that's what I, I want to do. But I know why I'm here. And I use that, that vehicle of why I'm here to do that very thing. Yeah, that is huge. <laughs> I'm getting so emotional just like listening <laughs> because this is this is just so real and I think um especially people like myself and even the people that are listening and um just hearing how much you love what you do um and how much you're led by purpose is so huge like even my motto is to love God and love people um and that needs to show up in every asset of my life every facet of my life um yep. not just in my spiritual life but also at work also my friend groups as well so just hearing that reflected in um how you show up is it it resonates with me so much um so can you tell us a bit more about check the rhyme yeah yeah Um, so so i started my doctoral um program what three years ago and as i'm exploring what i was interested in i knew i wanted to study social contagion yeah i've just been fascinated by that and had done some like non-academic studies but i've always been fascinated by it and I thought about, like, so in what context do I want to look at social contagion? And as I'm reading through the literature, I realized that, like, there's hardly any, like, this not hardly any, there is not a large body of work in the business and management literature about hip-hop, which I thought was just mind, it was mind-boggling. Yeah. Because you have this, this industry, multi-billion dollar industry, that impacts tons of categories from auto to music to beauty to sport to fashion to tech like motorola two-way page me like that like we got on that because jay told us told us that and give it to me right like unbelievable impact on commerce yet completely understudied and i just thought it was just unreal to me unreal to me at least in the understudy relative to its impact on 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 commerce in the marketplace so i decided to you know to create a video series that takes hip-hop lyrics and extract marketing insights from it Mm -hmm. right so we're alerts that we can look at that are almost colloquial in the way that we sort of talk it's like part of our our dialect um the lexicon of the culture and what are marketing things you could pull out of it like so for instance i think the first one i did um was uh, Andre Benjamin's verse in, uh, in Elevators, uh, Me and You. And he says, uh, if you don't move your feet, then I don't eat. So we like neck to neck, which essentially is the core function of marketing. Like as marketers, our job is to get people to move. Yeah. Do this, not that. Go here, go there. Don't move him over her. Don't go to his movie, my movie. Everything we do as marketers is to influence people to move. And this is basically what Andre Benjamin is saying. If you don't move your feet, then we don't eat. So we like neck to neck. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, there's these these lyrics that are just rich with marketing implications that marketers can learn a lot from yeah. right so our job as marketers isn't just to get people's attention because people can know who you are not who jc pennies is unless you've been to jc pennies right like is that enough to know it's to get people to act you know we don't believe you you need more people like that's a part of like that's a part of the, the lexicon um, in the hip hop culture that comes from a Jay-Z lyric and take and take over, which essentially is about trust. Right. Yeah. If other people ain't rocking with you, they're like, mm, I don't know, I can buy that. Yeah, right? social proof too. Mm-hmm. That's social proof at its best. Like we yeah. look for indicators of acceptability, of legitimation, mm-hmm. right? Of legitimacy based upon our observations of other people. Yeah. We don't believe you need more people. And if marketers took the time to think about what what can be gleaned from these lyrics, then perhaps we'd be better at our jobs. Yeah. Woo! That is so good. That is so good. One of your most recent Check the Rhymes was about a Pusha T, Pusha T lyric um, that talked about brand conviction. Yeah. 
So talk to us about why is brand conviction so important? Because it seems like companies are still not getting it. There's so many companies hopping on the bandwagon saying Black Lives Matter. Um, You know, are we support you? We stand with you. So why is it that they understand? And how even even as um, young marketers, how do we get them to understand it as their employees, you know, as as people of the, the culture as well? How do we get them to understand the importance of brand conviction? All right. So the first, so the first it's, um, so the, the lyric I used was from Pusha T's, the games we play. This ain't a wave or a phase. Cause all that fades is lifestyles forever when you made. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that look, you know, trends come and go, right? But like when you are about that life, it is a lifestyle, right? And when you are about that life, you endear yourself to people who subscribes to lifestyle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is important because the more that marketers leverage the media that's available to us to help us establish relationships with consumers, the more those consumers, the more those relationships are governed by humanity. Mm-hmm. That is, if I want, if, if a brand wants me to, to love them, then you gotta call me, baby. You got to show up. You got to answer my text messages like we would in any relationship, right? If we are in a relationship, I expect some level of reciprocity, mm-hmm. right? And the thing with that is that marketers want relationships between consumers and brands, but aren't necessarily willing to invest in a relationship beyond a transactional relationship, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, uh, Beyonce said it best, you know, if you, if you're all about black people then say my name. Mm-hmm. Like don't 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 say you love black people during in February during Black History Month, mm-hmm. right? Or right now in when Black Lives Matter is popping, like mm-hmm. no, say my name all the time, right? Like, like you care about me all the time. Otherwise, I'm not buying it. So mm-hmm. when brands do these sort of Black History Month gestures, they're often kind oftentimes met with sort of an eye roll because like, well, that's well done, but why aren't you doing that back in 2016 when we were marching in Ferguson? Exactly. I was marching in Dallas. Like, where were you then? Mm-hmm. It wasn't convenient for you. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where conviction plays a role because we judge people or we evaluate people based upon their historical behavior. Yeah. Right? It's like, yo, like, yeah, I like what you're saying now, but how do you explain what you did back then when mm-hmm. you didn't care? Mm-hmm. Now, we'll accept apologies and like, yeah. They say we messed up, we weren't paying attention to it now, now we are moving forward, great. Because that's how human relationships work too. So mm-hmm. our friends make a mistake, we're like, all right, I get you, I appreciate the apology, let's move forward, mm-hmm. right? But brands who are just like, yeah, we're all about it now, we're all about black people now, well, because it's convenient. Yeah. Conviction requires people to be convicted. Yes, yes, yes. I stand for something when no one else is. Like, mm-hmm. I'm about this life. And then, you know, in the, that, the episode of, Check the rhyme. You know, I name check some brands that do this well. Like Patagonia is about that life. Mm-hmm. Like they are all about like climbing clean. They're all about like minimal invasiveness on the earth. Mm-hmm. They, they, they will give up money for that. REI, you know, they close their doors on Black Fridays because they are all about that life. People need to be outside. Mm-hmm. So why would we actually encourage people to come into our stores? when majority of the country has a day off. Yeah. Well, we make money that way. It's like, but that's not what we're about. That's not where we're convicted. It's mm-hmm. not where our convictions lie. Ben and Jerry's have been all about, you know, uh, political oh. activism mm-hmm. from the jump. So they don't say, you know, we, we don't condone racism and we are, we are against all hate speech. They're like, no, 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 we need to end, disrupt, and break white supremacy. And you're like, yeah, man, <laughs> <laughs> that part. Yeah. Right, and, and, and so when people are convicted, when it's a part of who they are, when it's uh, their lifestyle, we believe it. Mm-hmm. And so marketers who want to establish these relationships with, with people, with their consumers, mm-hmm. have to kind of be real about it. Mm-hmm. That's so the thing. That, don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Brands are not able to do it, though, if they don't have the right, like the diversity on their teams. Yes. I mean, that's the the thing is that there's two parts. One, brands aren't able to do it well when they don't even know what they believe. Mm -hmm. 
They don't know, they don't have, they're not convicted. A lot of brands aren't convicted, right? They don't have conviction. They make products, sure, make products and we have an identifier that's meant to conjure up thoughts and feelings, but there's no ideology that guides what the brand is all about. Mm -hmm. So trying to feign a conviction feels like, mm, you just sell peanuts though. Like, that's not, you're not about this. Mm -hmm. Like, I appreciate you doing the blackout, you know, Black Lives Matter, okay, thanks, but like, no, you're not about this life. Um, but it requires people understanding the nuances of the culture. Remember back to understanding the cultural frames and the meaning making process in those conversations in those organizations to say, hey, that won't work. Mm -hmm. Or hey, that's not how they see it. I know you're saying this, but they don't make meaning of it that way. Mm -hmm. This is why cultural proximity is so unbelievably important when it comes to marketing, when it yeah. comes to getting people move. Why? Because culture is the governing operating system that informs what we do. Mm -hmm. Consumption at its core is a cultural act. Mm -hmm. If we don't understand culture or the cultures that we're trying to tap into, then we're always going to play ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I know we're, we're coming close on the, the ending of the podcast very, very soon. Uh, but I did want to ask you these last two questions. Um, you can even combine them. Um, so sharing how, ha how can black, how can black music um, influence how we show up in this world? Um, and also how black people are even portrayed in the media. And will we ever come to a point where we can fully show up as ourselves as black folks and what can okay, i'll let you answer those and then that that last question well, those, those, are, those are big ones you know those are those are big ones there's big ones i think the first is that you know will we be at will we ever be able to let's start with the, the, the latter and we'll come back to the first ever able to be ourselves mm -hmm. you know that is a a byproduct of legitimation, mm -hmm. acceptability, right? Uh, 30 years ago, if you went into a boardroom where your hair natural, it's like, mm, what is she doing? Mm -hmm. Unacceptable, right? Wearing locks, unacceptable in the workplace, right? That stance has softened, right? It's culture evolving, that stance has softened. And it won't be until it is fully legitimized, legitimate, acceptable, that people will be able to be their, their whole selves. I mean, even think about tattoos, like it seems like everybody has a tattoo, right? But if someone walked into Morgan Stanley with a neck tattoo, do you think that person would get hired? No. No. They're like, nah, fam. Mm -mm. Because that is not legitimate in that setting. Mm -hmm. It's not until it is acceptable that people will be able to be their full selves. Mm. So we think about like the role that music can play in all of this is that, you know, the mythology, the folklore of the culture is what ushers in what we negotiate as members of the culture saying that's cool now, right? Like, you know, if you saw a rapper like dropping gay slurs, you'd be like, yo fam, that's not okay. Mm. We're 15 years ago, totally fine, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, in 10 years ago, five years ago, if someone, if I said, man, I love that dude, I have to say, pause, mm -hmm. like, pause. Like, I would have to do that just to let you know where I stand. But now, I'm like, yo, I love that dude. That's my dude, I love my man, love him without having to do that, right? So the culture has, has evolved. What it means is that the voice of hip hop that is, through the music, through the fashioning, through uh, the cultural products that are created, has to have to start the discourse or start the dialogue that creates the discourse that leads us to legitimation. Mm -hmm. It leads us to legitimizing what is acceptable. And that's not just responsibility of the artists, it's also responsibility of the collective broadly because we, the buyer, the listener, the subscriber, we vote with our behaviors on what we feel is okay. Mm -hmm. It's a collective responsibility for all of us. Yes. And last question yep. before we hop into the speed round. And it's gonna be very short, three short speed round. 
Um, how can rising marketing leaders, what advice would you give them for those who are going into marketing and who want to make an impact? What can they do? What does that look like practically? Read, 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 read. I'm incessantly reading, understanding the world, getting a broader perspective and incorporating that into the work product, the work you do. Another thing that to mention here is that like the work you do, we have to think about the time, like right now your career, you're just starting, you know, you have a lot of time and a little money. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of time, little money. Over time, that time is going to decrease just by the nature of life. Like you have kids, you get married, you have other stuff going on, right? The idea is that you do what you can when you have a lot of money and a lot of time, little money to raise the paper so that when your time goes down, your money goes up, mm-hmm. which means you have to use your time like capital. Mm-hmm. Like I, like I'm a firm believer, like, yo, it's good to get it in in a pre COVID world. It's good to get it in. But like you need to be investing your time in your career, investing your time into your skill set, sharpening your craft, sharpening the skill set so that over time, you relative to your competitors, other people in the field, while they were out getting drinks and sipping Mai Tais and doing brunch, you're in there writing decks, you're in there reading, you're in there, you know, shooting more shots. Like Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, would say that. After practice, he'd shoot a thousand shots after practice, a thousand shots to get better. Wow. And this is what it requires. It requires a lot of work, a lot of work, shooting a lot of shots. Mm-hmm. And you do that when you have more time than you have money. Yeah. So that as your time goes down, which it will do just by nature, your dollars will go up too. Yes. During this time, rising marketing leaders. You have more time and less money. Focus on sharpening your craft before that changes. Let's get into the speed round. One, TikTok and hip hop. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I am. Um, <laughs> I I think it's I think it is any medium that allows for the propagation of the culture mm-hmm. and that invite people into it, I think is dope. Like uh, Curtis Roach, who's from Detroit, actually his, his mother and I went to school, makes me feel super old, uh, who did Board in the House, In the House Board. Like, mm-hmm. dude is a dope MC, but that vehicle allowed his, his music to be heard by other people and now dudes on BT and whatnot, right? So mm-hmm. I welcome it, applaud it. Yes. Second. Kanye West, Yeezy Brown, and Gap. Brilliant. Look, I love Ye. I I have a very complicated relationship with Kanye West. I love this man, but complicated relationship. Um, I think that the partnership with Gap is just so on point. If you go back to the spaceships, let's go back, back to the Gap. Like it just makes all the sense in the world, especially in a time where we're talking about racial inequality, because in the record, he's talking about the fact that he was tokenized, right? Mm-hmm. They get to me, Pat and Packy, bless them, Pat and he bless them. White people come in and let, let the show off their token blackie. And here yeah. he is now, a partner of Gap. I just, and it's very inspiring to see Kanye sort of manifest all the things that he professed when no one else believed in him. Yeah, yeah. Third and last, what is your current favorite comp- campaign that adopts hip hop culture? Ooh, current campaign that adopts hip hop culture? Ooh. Now here's the thing it's like, what campaign doesn't adopt hip-hop culture mm-hmm. like i'd say american culture is hip-hop culture mm-hmm. like everything from like like hip-hop believes that i came from nothing to something i'm stunting on you that's hip-hop that is the american dream right mm-hmm. i pull myself up by my bootstraps now i'm stunting on you mm-hmm. right hip-hop is just it's it's prevalent in all all of culture so when i when i see ads now they either got a hip-hop track or hip-hop stylings or an attitude that's reflective of the hip-hop culture. Um, so call it a cheat, but I'd say every ad that is representative of American culture is hip-hop culture. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Marcus Collins, for taking your time to have this conversation with me, conversation with afternoon agency this means the world as we are closing out black music month you dropped so many gems that will also live on our blogs make sure you guys check that out um and this will be on the podcast this 
Friday. I appreciate you. I, there are last few things I'm supposed to say, but I can find it. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Best of luck. Take care. Of course. Have a wonderful day. You too. Ciao. All right. I want, Marcus Collins was super, super amazing. The last reminders I want to give you um, for the listener is to make sure you read the blog on Black Music Month. We also want you to check out the agency playlist on Spotify and Apple Music. Be on the lookout for a podcast every single Friday. We love you. We appreciate you for even tuning in. Again, my name is Makisha Noel, and I'm Afternoon Agency's copywriter. Until next time, peace! Black women are beautiful. Black women are strength. Cries from the Dark Side of the Moon is a poetry book that hits on the power of black women. Cries from the Dark Side of the Moon is a poetry collection of passion, pain, and promise. This emotional thriller shares real stories and experiences of black women with a poetic twist. Each story allows the opportunity of self-discovery, connection, and self-reflection. This piece is more than just a cry from the dark side of the moon. It is a chance for each reader to share their story. Visit laurenmwhite.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-M-W-H-I-T-E dot com to learn more about the author and get your book today for less than $10.